it's handy to have a Bible open, but uh, I suspect more what's been happening the last few weeks is we're, we're jumping around lots of places. References will come up on the screen, so it might be even more useful to have a pencil and on the inside of that outline you can jot down the references and look them up later. Uh, not surprisingly, we're talking about the Holy Spirit this morning. I want to ask you, how would you know that you had the Holy Spirit in you? Now, it's not as if you walk down the street uh, and you see a holy glow emanating from some people and not from others. You know, to talk about things, as we saw this morning with the kids, uh, to talk about things you can't see is difficult. Uh, and if you're talking about it personally, it can be even harder. Uh, so questions about the Spirit of God in your life uh, can for some people, and for many people, be actually quite difficult for them to speak of. But we need to be able to speak of it. We need to be able to answer how we know God's Spirit is in us. Because Jesus says in John 3... Uh, picking up the language of uh, our reading from Ezekiel, that no one can enter the kingdom of God unless he is born of water and the Spirit. Uh, Wolfhart Pannenberg, a German scholar, great name, Wolfhart, um, he, uh, he shared his own experience of God's Spirit in his life. Uh, he says, My single most important experience occurred to me in early January 1945 when I was 16 years old. On a lonely two-hour walk home from my piano lesson, seeing an otherwise ordinary sunset, I was suddenly flooded by light and absorbed in a sea of light, which, although it didn't extinguish the humble awareness of my finite existence, overflowed the barriers that normally separate us from the surrounding world. Uh, Several months earlier, I had narrowly escaped an American bombardment at Berlin. Uh, A few weeks later, my family would have to leave our East German home because of the Russian offensive. I didn't know at the time that January 6th was the day of Epiphany, nor did I realise that in that moment Jesus Christ had claimed my life as a witness to the transfiguration of this world in the illuminating power and judgement of his glory. But there began a period of craving to understand the meaning of life and since philosophy didn't seem to offer the ultimate answers to such a quest, I finally decided to probe the Christian tradition more seriously than I had considered worthwhile before. Uh, It's a remarkable story. Uh, He bathed in light and in some sense he's connected with something that is greater than himself. Uh, But what if, you know, like me, you you haven't had an experience like that? How can I recognise the Spirit of God with certainty? Uh, The the Christian communities of uh, the 17th century in New England, uh, over in the States, they wrestled with this. Uh, The the Puritan heritage had placed a really high value on powerful conversion experiences as a testimony that God was present among them and in them personally. Uh, But but the problem was after a few generations they were stumped. How do we view those who don't have a conversion experience? You know, people who'd kind of grown up from children to be adults in church life as Christians and so didn't do a radical change of life. And Well, one solution in Boston was what they called the halfway covenant. Uh, so when these children grew up and they stood up and they confessed the Christian faith, they could be church members, but they weren't allowed to vote and they weren't allowed to take the Lord's Supper because they had no conversion experience. Uh, the, the halfway covenant, I'd want to say, is kind of like that half-pregnant view of the Spirit's presence. You know, it leaves people there as half-Christian. They're the kind of, well, we know they're, not, yeah, they're just somewhere in between. See, how would you know if the Holy Spirit was at work in you? 
I want to say to answer it properly, we, we need to actually step behind our personal experiences. We need to see who the Spirit is on God's inside and we need to see the nature of his work. Uh, so as Andrew has already said, it's our fourth and final week looking at the Trinity, uh, looking at God himself. Um, we, we've seen the perfect relationship he has, this other person-centred action that unites God as one. Uh, we saw, though, that their, their oneness doesn't mean that they are indistinct. They have distinctive roles. And, and actually it's their distinction, the different things they do, that tightly binds them together. So God the Father uh, acts as a benevolent authority of the Trinity. What I meant by that was that that he leads for the benefit of the members of the Father, for the Son and the Spirit. Uh, And God the Son, last week we looked at him being the agent of change whose actions actually radically changed God uh, and changed God's experiences and activities. Uh, And so who's the the Holy Spirit on the inside, on God's inside? Uh, He is God's self-effacing power self-effacing power of God. Uh, what do we mean by that? Uh, first of all, the, the Spirit is entirely self-effacing in that he always points to the Son and to the Father for their glory and he never seeks or, or has it sought for himself. Uh, the very way in which the Spirit is spoken about in the Bible suggests that humility and that connection between him and, and God the Father and God the Son. So in the New Testament he's called um, the Holy Spirit a little less than a hundred times but he's known as the Spirit of Jesus or the Spirit of God uh, nearly 50 times and yet the New Testament would never speak of the Father of the Spirit or the Son of the Spirit. It doesn't talk about the Father and the Son in connection to the Spirit in the way, they, in the way that it speaks of the Spirit connected necessarily to the Father and the Son. See the Spirit never acts independently and he never acts for himself. Uh, his work is to bring glory to, to others uh, by reinforcing what they've done rather than doing something new. So in John 14, uh, the counsellor, Jesus speaks and says, The counsellor of the Holy Spirit, whom, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and remind you of everything I said to you. Uh, and again, a chapter later, Jesus says, When the counsellor comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the spirit of truth who goes out from the Father, he will testify about well, me. The spirit, he self-effacingly just reinforces what Jesus has said and done. Why? Because he wants Jesus to be glorified. Uh, so John 16, uh, when he, the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. He won't speak on his own, he'll only speak what he hears and he'll tell you what he's yet to come. He will bring glory to me, Jesus speaking. He will bring glory to me by taking what is mine and making it known to you. All that belongs to the Father is mine. And that's why I said the Spirit will take what's mine and make it known to you. Seeking glory for the Son is the pattern of the Spirit's work. But, But that doesn't diminish his power in any way, shape or form. Um, so in the, the Nicene Creed, an old creed, um, it's on your outline, uh, at least part of it uh, again this week, uh, we affirm I, and I or we believe in the Holy Spirit who is the Lord, the giver of life. He, he proceeds from the Father and the Son who together with the Father and the Son is worshipped and glorified and, sp- and who has spoken by the prophets. See, the, the Holy Spirit is the Lord. He is the giver of life. As Jesus puts it in John 6, the Spirit gives life. Flesh counts for nothing. 
The words I've spoken to you are spirit and they are life. He gives life because he's so profoundly connected, indivisibly connected to the word. Um, in, in the same way that, that our breath is, is connected to our word. So in, in Hebrew, the Old Testament, the word breath is the Hebrew word for spirit and they're tied together with speech. Word and breath go together inseparably. And so the Holy Spirit with the word gives life. So back in creation, Genesis 1, uh, you can look it up later, Genesis 1 verse 2, the spirit, God's breath, is hovering over the surfaces of the deep. And then God speaks and God said, and the wonder of creation begins. So Psalm 104 verse 30 says, When you send your spirit, they are created, and you renew the face of the earth. You know, we, we look at the wonder of creation um, and, and even the wonder of, of human achievement and human culture and we see something of the life-giving work of the spirit. But more than that, the spirit gives life in the new creation. Because uh, the spirit, spirit powerfully applies the Godhead's work to people like you and me. John Calvin pointed out a problem. Um, as long as Christ remains outside of me and we are separated from him, all that he has suffered and done for the salvation of the human race remains useless and of no value. To, to put it another way, isn't it great that Jesus Christ defeated death by his own resurrection? Uh, isn't it great that he's got the riches of heaven now? But if I'm not in Christ, if I've got no connection with him, all that's fascinating information but completely useless to me. The Spirit has the power to give life by uniting believers to that work of Christ, putting them in Christ. Uh, Jesus prays this in John 17 for people like you and me. Even. I have given them, uh, believers, the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one. I in them, you in me. Uh, may they be brought to complete unity to let the world know that you sent me and have loved them even as you loved me. We can be as intimately connected into God as God is himself, as the Spirit powerfully applies the work of Jesus. It's that new life that Jesus said in John 3 is necessary. You need to be born again by the water and the Spirit. And yet with all this power, the Spirit stays humble. See, see some have described the, the kind of self-effacing power of the Spirit as like a window. You know, a window um, opens up a room to the beauty and possibility of creation outside. You can admire the view. Uh, and if you sit staring at the glass rather than looking at the view, you're kind of undermining the purpose of the window as well as being a bit silly. But more than that, the spirit is actually much more intentional than just merely a, a window that we look through. It's more like, a, he, he acts more like a stage lighting at the theatre. So in that darkened room, uh, he works as a spotlight on the centre stage and he illuminates Jesus in all of Jesus' wonder and all of Jesus' glory. So if you go to the theatre, I don't know how often you get there, but if you do and you ignore the actors who are on stage and you're instead marvelling at the great work of the uh, light technicians and go, wow, isn't that a fantastic spotlight and stare at that rather than stare at the actors on stage, I want to say you've missed the point of theatre. Save your money. Uh, to do the same with the Holy Spirit, to, to miss the glory of Jesus is to undermine his work. He wants, with all his power, Jesus to be noticed, who in turn reveals the Father. 
I want to say there's a really subversive way of thinking about power. Uh, the Holy Spirit is a subversive. You know, to have power and not want attention. Uh, someone asked me this week whether I wanted to be a bishop one day. Now, there's nothing sinister in the question, uh, but it's just assumed in, uh, in our culture that we, we all want to head to the highest position where we are most noticeable. You know, so Andy Warhol famously promised a future where everyone would be famous for 15 minutes. Uh, with the help of reality TV, the future is the present. You know, children today grow up wanting to be famous. You know, they just, they're not wanting to grow up and I want to do something spectacular, which might result in fame. They just want to be famous. Just being the centre of attention is, is enough. You know, our instinct, our natural instinct is to, to chase power and when we get some power to exert it over others and, and you know, make sure people notice that we have power. I want to say if you've bought into pride in any form, and there's religious forms too, especially I want to say the spiritual form, you know, where you get into that pride of, of self-righteousness, where you stop comparing yourself to, other, you know, to, to God himself and start comparing yourself to other people and so you can look a little more virtuous and build up your pride that way. You know, if you've bought into pride, the myth of pride in any way, you know, learn from the Spirit. The Spirit subverts all that. He turns it on its head. He shows that power goes with humility. And our humility, don't mishear me, humility is not pretending you're less than you are. That's just lying. Humility, though, is considering others and their situation before your own. And that's the spirit. And we might honour the Father by coming in prayer directly to him, acknowledging that the Father has authority. We might honour the Son by talking about him to others, letting them know that he is the the king overall. But we honour the self-effacing power of the Spirit by, well, heaping praise on Jesus because that's who he wants to heap praise on. And by heaping praise on the Father. How much you know if that self-effacing power is at work in you, if he, the Spirit, is present on your inside? How would you know if you've been born again and, and have Christ's Spirit? Well, I want to say that you would recognise his work in yourself and in other Christians as they display that same work of the Spirit. You know, so if you self-effacingly acknowledge Christ and his power is seen in your life and you're pointing towards him, well then it's clear that the Spirit is at work in your life and you've been united to him. Uh, the three things Andrew flagged for us at the start of the service, three signs of experiencing the Holy Spirit on our insides, well it's fellowship, uh, illumination and sanctification. I, I know they're not particularly catchy titles. Let me flesh them out a little bit for us. Uh, fellowship. The Holy Spirit's work entering into people like you and me is to unite us to God and to other people, to create fellowship. So as Jesus said, regarding the spirit of truth in John 14, the world can't accept him because it neither sees him or knows him. But you know him, for he lives with you and will be in you. The Holy Spirit moves into renovators' delights like you and me. You know, with all our inclinations to immorality and impurity and idolatry and anger and jealousy, the kind of stuff Galatians 5 talked about, you know, he comes into renovators' delights like you and me, wrecks really, and draws us into to uninhibited fellowship with God. 
and it's kind of recursive movement. So he, the Father sends the, the Son, who sends the Spirit, comes into us and he brings us back along that path, back from the Spirit to the Son, back up to the Father. And it, along the way, he unites us, brings us to the Father without barriers, because he himself, God himself, is willing to slum it and live in someone like you and me. God doesn't send a secondary being. He doesn't go, oh, I'll get one of the angels. They're probably not busy at the moment. I'll get one of them to go and look after those Christian people. No, no, no. God himself comes and lives in us. He makes us his children in Romans 8. Uh, And if we were probably a little more humble and had a little less sense of entitlement, would actually blow us away because it's an act of pure love, 1 John 3 talks about. It's not payment. The whole manner of love that the Father would call us his sons, his children. Uh, a young boy, about four or five, uh, once strode up to the White House, uh, the centre of world power. He went past the guards, he went past every door, every level of door, he just opened it up. Uh, he went right into the Oval Office where he strode happily in and he climbed up onto the presidential ladder. Uh, it was John F. Kennedy Jr. climbing onto his father's lap. No guards, no barriers, unlimited access as a child, as a son. In the same way that God the Spirit draws us people into fellowship with God like that. That, that, our, that our communion with God is the same as God's own fellowship. See, God's fellowship is based on, on acts of mutual love, doing things that show they love each other. So our fellowship with God is not about a mystical experience, it's evidenced in, in concrete acts of love, doing things that show we love God. As Jesus puts it in John 14, I won't leave you as orphans. I'll come to you. Before long the world won't see me anymore, but you'll see me. Because I live in you, you will also live. On that day you will realise that I am in my Father, and you are in me, and I am in you. Whoever has my commands and obeys them, he is the one who loves me. He who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I too will love him and show myself to him. You see, that his active presence is seen in our actions of love for the Father and others. And that fellowship draws us into him and with others. So individualism is unchristian. We're drawn into fellowship with people across cultures, across nations, uh, across class, beyond geography. And we're united not mystically but in acts of love and care. So our prayer for the pals that Brendan's challenged us to do, uh, our emails to the giblets as they head off, all the signs that God is really with you by his spirit. Uh, secondly, illumination. You know, this, this fellowship is created by illumination. That is, um, the spirit enables you to be self-effacing and recognise Jesus Lord rather than you pretending you are. And it's like a light being switched on. That's the illumination. That we're actually able to love God with all our hearts and souls and minds. Now, why, why is it that the people I grew up in youth group with uh, heard the same talks as me? They aren't all Christians. Now, it's not an intellectual issue. I'm not trying to claim I was smart and they weren't that smart people. Um, our problem as humans in knowing God is not intellectual, it's moral and it's spiritual. Romans 1 says how we, we actually naturally suppress the knowledge of the truth of God by our deeds of wickedness. Now John 3 goes on to talk about how we actually prefer darkness. People naturally prefer darkness than coming to Jesus the light because they don't want to be shown up. 
my fellow youth groupers aren't all Christians because they haven't experienced the Spirit's illuminating work. Bringing the Word to life to them. Augustine said, you can't know things without a desire for them. Uh, in other words, unless you start, you, you'll never be able to hear God's word unless you love him first. And have a longing for him. Uh, the, the word and spirit are never separated. You know, I can't acknowledge Jesus as my Lord without hearing the word, but I also need the spirit-inspired word to be illuminated in my life, personally. So, so recently there was a, a report in the Sydney Morning Herald, uh, I suppose about Australians, Australian Christians and their Bible reading habits. It said, of those Australians who go to church, 21% read their Bible daily, 14% open it a few times a week, 6% once a week. Now obviously, uh, I, you know, it's my job, I'm going to be all the more for, yeah, read your Bible more. Um, but increasing stats for the sake of impressions, so the Sydney Morning Herald could write something different about us, you know. That's not where it's at. It's not a mechanical exercise. It's a relational one. Yeah? When we read our Bibles, the Word, we, we want the Spirit to accompany the Word so that we can be comforted and challenged, that we can be uplifted and transformed. Make sure you're praying as you read the Word. See, so how do you know if you have the Spirit in you? Well, if you can call Jesus your Lord and you don't need the spotlight on your life anymore, you don't need to be the centre stage, well, then the Spirit is there and He keeps working you through His Word. Third one, sanctification. If he's illuminated Jesus to you, the great thing is the Holy Spirit doesn't stop there. He'll keep doing that ongoing work of sanctifying you. Uh, sanctifying, fancy word, it just, it's the idea of setting you apart for a special purpose, putting something aside. Uh, in terms of the Spirit's work, he sets us aside so that we can live out the truth that Jesus is the Lord. You know, the spirit inside of, of a believer, of you and me, enables him to do God's work. You know, whether that's spectacular endowments, you know, Judges 14 and Samson ripping apart, you know, a few Philistine enemies, uh, or whether it's just the more incredible, or maybe not, not more, but the equally incredible and spectacular work of, of breaking my inclination and slavery to sin so that I can actually bear the fruit of another person's ended life. Now, we read Galatians 5. You, my brothers, were called to be free. Don't use your freedom to indulge the sinful nature. Rather, serve one another in love. Later on, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Because earlier he'd said the entire law is summed up in the single command, love your neighbour as yourself. Against those things there's no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the sinful nation, nature with its passions and desires. And so since we live by the Spirit, let's keep in step with the Spirit. Yeah, real, real spirituality is defying natural, sinful, selfish actions and thoughts. That's the life-giving power of the Spirit. It actually frees you from, from the actions that would lead you to death and, and he enables us and you and me that we can actually live the way we were designed to, serving other people and serving God. Real life. Now, real spirituality is hearing and obeying the word of God. Now, Ezekiel 36, he foresaw a time when people's uncleanness is going to be washed away and a new heart and a new spirit is going to be put in them so that they would actually want to do things the God's way. What a remarkable change. 
The Spirit is at work renewing us so we can join in in the life-giving work of pointing to Jesus. Our actions and our words. I hope this morning you go away knowing that the Spirit, whether or not the Spirit is in you. How would you know he's in you? Well, you know, perhaps you've had a great experience like Wolfhart Pannenberg. You know, bathed in a connection with something greater. Or maybe you're more like those, those second generation New Englanders, you know, no, no great conversion story to speak of. Either way, you, you can recognise the Spirit and you can see it in your life if you've got that self-effacing love of Jesus and you praise him then if you're able to do that be assured the spirit has come and he is renovating you you've been cleansed by the water and the spirit you can graciously enter the kingdom of God that's a cause for joy let's pray Lord and Father we want to thank you for the work of your spirit thank you for his willingness uh, to not seek the glory uh, but to point it back to your son and you Father, we pray that we, each one of us today, might follow in his humility. That we would not seek glory for ourselves, but would rather be more than happy to point it over and hand it over to Jesus. Father, we pray that your spirit would work powerfully in us, continue to illuminate Jesus to us, that as we look at the word, we become more clear about who you are and that the spirit would keep sanctifying us, changing us, making us more and more like the one we love. Father, make us people who uh, live out that unity we have with you by the way that we love you and love others. In Jesus' name, amen.